Hi, everyone. Welcome. We're just gathering together. Give us a second here, please, and we will get started momentarily. Thanks for joining. We're going to get started in just a minute. Just trying to get as many people in. Stand by. and welcome to the latest of the DLN's Expert Access webinar series. All it's right, a closer it looks like we're having some technical difficulties. Michael, oh. we can't hear you. You can't hear me? I hear Michael. Oh, no. Can you hear me? Because I can hear Michael. Can you hear me now? There we go. Oh, sorry about that. Can You can hear me now, Megan? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Anyway, um, today, uh, um, you know, the DLN webinar, uh, Expert Access webinar series it takes a closer look at important and relevant topics in the architecture and design industry led by leading experts. Um, today's topic, which is Newspapers, Nudity, and Newport, The Gilded Life of James Gordon Bennett Jr., um, is a bit of a history lesson, um, which, and there's no one better to present this than uh, our DLN Master Council member and last year's Design Leadership Award winner, Tom Kliegerman. We're thrilled to have Tom with us. Um, before he co-founded I Kliegerman Barkley, Tom worked for Robert A.M. Stern Architects and received his Bachelor of Arts from Columbia and got his Master's of Architecture from the Yale School of Architecture. He's passionate about the design process, loves studying and creating architectural models, and serves on the boards of a number of charitable and educational institutions. Tom and his family enjoy summer weekends racing sailboats on the co uh, coast of Rhode Island, um, which is very appropriate because James Gordon Bennett was also an avid sailor and loved architecture, as we're about to learn. I'm always fascinated by stories about power, wealth, status, sex, and beauty, which is probably why a lot of us were uh, attracted to the design industry to begin with. So we're thrilled to have Tom here to give his fascinating presentation. So please, Tom. And by the way, we're gonna take questions, but we'll answer the questions at the end and please type them into the Q&A section uh, at the bottom of the screen. And we will answer any questions at the end. So it's all yours. Thank you, Michael and Megan, and thank you to the DLN to, uh, for letting me um, speak today. As, as Michael mentioned, um, my talk is called Newspapers, Nudity and Newport, The Gilded Life of James Gordon Bennett. And I'm not just going to talk about James Gordon Bennett. I want to talk about really the client designer relationship. And so a lot of the talk will also be about McKimmed and White. And the whole sort of relationship of client and good design goes way, way back. 
Um, if you think about the Parthenon from 432 BC, there was a client. It happened to be the city, the Athen, the city-state of Athens, Pericles. And in the 1920s and 30s and early 40s, William Randolph Hearst designed uh, San Simeon with Julia Morgan. And our parents' generation, Lee Raswell, hired people like Renzo Mangiardino to do incredible rooms like this one. And today, that relationship is still important. People like Kanye West and Kim Kardashian hiring Belgian designer Axel Verdo to do their, their house in Los Angeles. So the relationship is really important. The two people I want to start talking about are, are um, the father, uh, James Gordon Bennett Sr. He was born in 1795. He's born in Scotland. Um, at the, in that year, this is what Manhattan looked like. This is Government House, which is the old city hall for Manhattan. And it sits pretty much where City Hall sits today, downtown. By the time his son, James Gordon Bennett Jr. dies in 1918, this is what Manhattan looked like. It's incredible, the transformation. Here's the Woolworth Tower from 1904, the Singer Tower, which was torn down in 1919. 08. This is the view of Lower Manhattan as though you were arriving on a ferry from, uh, from the Statue of Liberty. His, the father, James Gordon Bennett Sr., was born in Scotland, and he comes to the United States, and he starts a newspaper, the New York Herald, and here's a copy of an early edition of it. Um, it was a real, it was an important magazine. It was a newspaper. It was almost like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. He would send out scads of reporters in this case, during the Civil War, he had reporters at the battle sites during the battles, and Abraham Lincoln actually used the Herald to get information to lead the, the, the effort in the war with the South. So on the one hand, it was very serious. On the other hand, Bennett was sort of the Rupert Murdoch of his age. He kind of created the tabloid, and he knew that would sell the paper. So he talked about grisly murders. He interviewed madams and prostitutes. He even talked about his wife's nude body in really embarrassing detail, but he sold newspapers. He married someone, I can't remember her name, I couldn't find a picture of her, but I had this image that she looks something like this, maybe with a couple of kittens on her laps, on her lap, and they have two children. The first, uh, the first is, is James Gordon Bennett Jr., but he also, they also had Jeanette. The kids were raised in, in Paris largely because the father had made so many enemies through his newspaper articles that he had the kids and everybody sent to, to Europe. But on his 16th birthday, he's brought back to the United States. His father gives him a 170 foot or I forget how long, 100 foot long sailboat. Um, and, and Bennett is somebody who is always at the right place at the right time. He's always with somebody important. It's like that old movie Zelig, if you guys know that. He's always with somebody important. And here's a photograph from the Civil War when he helped in the Battle of Port Royal. He actually helped win the Battle of Port Royal with South Carolina. There's his boat, Rebecca, 16th birthday present. And right next to it is the Monitor, if you remember the, one of the two ironclads in the Battle of the Merrimack and the Monitor. There he is with that. He had a string of boats, as I think Michael may have mentioned. The next one was Henrietta. Um, he was the youngest member of the New York Yacht Club. In fact, he became the commodore of the New York Yacht Club twice. Um, and he was, um, he was known as the Mad Commodore. He won the first transatlantic sail sailing race. He sailed from New Jersey to the Isle of Wight in England, apparently drunk the entire time. His sailors really did the work, but he got the prize. Another boat called Nomura, and here he is in that white suit, and lounging here is Lily Langtree, the actress. So always someone famous around him. Beautiful boat, by the way. The interior is done by Stanford White, who we'll talk about in a little bit. But his big boat was Lysistrata, incredible name, 300 feet long. It had all kinds of modern conveniences, like a cow, so that he could have fresh cream in the morning in his coffee or fresh milk for his cereal. It also had his car, this French car, it was this brand, I don't know if it was this exact model, a De Dion Bouton, um, and he would take it everywhere he went. In fact, in 1906, he was the first person to drive a car on the island of Bermuda. And he drove everybody crazy. He raced around the island. He irritated everybody, kicking up clouds of dust and making noise. And some of the people who happened to witness that were Woodrow Wilson and Mark Twain, who started writing letters, please never let another car ever on the island of Bermuda. He was an incredible sportsman. 
he started the Bennett Cup in sailing. This is the this is the Tiffany Trophy that he uh, commissioned. He had a hot air balloon race. To me, this looks like an award for a big gherkin competition, but this was his hot air balloon. And he did this not only because he loved sports, but also in doing these things, he would get exclusive rights so he could sell newspapers and write about the, about the events. This is a car race, the Bennett Cup in Paris, which eventually sort of morphed into um, the Le Mans. Um, but he did bigger things too. I'm sure you've heard of, of uh, Stanley and Livingston. He actually paid for Henry Stanley and gave him 150 horses to march through Africa in the search of Livingston, who actually wasn't really lost. But in the days before television and radio, this was, this was, this was live TV. This was, was um, what do they call it, um, a reality show. And people would wait for the next issue, just like people today might wait for the next episode of The Bachelor. Um, and this is the scene where he says, Livingston, I presume? Not that it could be anybody else. <laughs> He lived in this genteel world where people rode around in carriages. This is a carriage known as a four in hand because you control four reins with one hand. And you can see these gentlemen here, but Bennett would race around Manhattan at breakneck speed up and down the avenues through Central Park in the middle of the night in the nude, only often sometimes wearing a silk top hat, but other than that, wearing nothing. He got engaged in uh, around 1877. He shows up at his fiance's uh, uh, house on Fifth Avenue or near Fifth Avenue for this um, New Year's Eve party. He's ripped on razzle-dazzles, which is a combination of brandy and absinthe. And he's stumbling around the party. And at some point, he relieves himself in the fireplace. Some people say it was the grand piano. But nonetheless, in front of everybody, all of New York society, he did that. He gets thrown out by uh, his fiance's brother. She breaks off the engagement. They end up having a duel. They both kind of, you know, shoot like this, I think, because neither one of them hits the other. But Bennett runs back to Paris and he runs uh, his newspapers from there. But this whole foreign hand thing, foreign hand still goes on today. It's a very expensive, very genteel pursuit. This is a photograph that I took two, two summers ago in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, on the grounds of, of, of the Elms, if you know that, that big house in Newport. And it's a really amazing sport. It's an incredibly expensive sport. You have to hire not only people to take care of your horses, but people to run along the side of the carriage. Newport was becoming, uh, during Bennett's lifetime, um, the place to be. People from New York and the Midwest and Boston were buying and building these incredible mansions. And of course, as I mentioned before, Bennett was there. He would take his boat from New York, he would dock it at Newport, and he would um, be wherever, be where he should, thought he should be. Oops. Um, one of the sports that he brought to this country was polo. And by the way, he also organized the first, first uh, professional tennis match. He brings polo to the United States. Um, and while he's up there, he joins a club just as he was in, uh, in New York. He becomes members of, of, a, of this particular club in Newport, the Reading Room. And when he brings the polo players over, one of the players is a guy named Augustus Candy, known as Sugar Candy. At some point, um, Bennett gets Candy a, a temporary membership in this club, and they're probably drinking, and, and um, Bennett bets Candy that he won't ride his polo pony up onto the porch of the reading room. This is a very blue blood established club. Sure enough, Candy says, fine. He gets on his polo pony, he rides onto the porch, and then he crashes right into the, into the club to everyone's horror. And, you know, we sort of think of horses in some, ways, uh, in some ways as pets today. But back then, a horse was a car. And this is the equivalent of getting in your Ferrari and racing around the terrace at the Maidstone Club in East Hampton and then driving through the front door. Needless to say, the members were, were shocked and horrified. And they took away Candy's rights to use the club. And Bennett, Jamie, was just couldn't believe it. He's like what is wrong with you guys? We're just having a little fun. I mean, I think he was probably incredulous, but nonetheless, he was really irritated and he decided he was going to create his own club. So he bought some land, or I think he may have owned some land right down the same street, Bellevue Avenue. And he hires this up and coming firm to design a new building. And it's McKim and White. Uh, this is a photograph of them when they were really established, but here you, here you have McKim, Charles McKim, 
You have Meade, William Rutherford Meade, who was known as Dummy. He was sort of the steady, steady voice in the firm and the business manager. And then the famous Stanford White on the right here. And McKim um, is very well educated. He went to Harvard. He was an architect educated, they called a Beaux-Arts. He did things in a very correct way. He could recite to a draftsman all the details of a building um, without actually looking at a piece of paper while the person drew it. On the other hand, there was White who was a little bit younger, had no architectural training, really had trained a little bit as a painter, he'd never gone to college, and he's, he's a pretty wild character, much like uh, Bennett, um, who's just drawn to anything in the world that's beautiful. He's just drawn by beauty and creating beauty. So Bennett hires these two guys early in, 18, in, the, in the late summer of 1879, and one year later, they have created what many of you maybe have visited, which is, the, is now called the Newport um, Tennis Hall of Fame, but at the time and still was the Newport Casino. And here it is in a photograph taken um, shortly after it opened. Um, the outside for the most part was designed by McKim, the architect and the sort of careful um, of the two of them. And you can see it's an early shingle style building within years of the shingle style first appearing. And it's very correct. It's very elegant. Um, it's sharp angles. It's some flourishes here of what's known as sort of a Queen Anne detailing. But in a way, it's a symmetrical Beaux-Arts building, even though it's wood and not stone like we think of Beaux-Arts building. This is pure McKim. If you look at the floor plan, there's that flat facade we saw. But in, oops, inside is a courtyard um, which you can see has all these circles and bumps and jogs. So you get the sense that beyond this flat wall is another world. So when you go in, this is the entrance from Bellevue Avenue, they leave no doubt as to where you're going, um, the casino, and you walk through this portal and you come out on the other side and all of a sudden it really is a different world from that sort of rigid exterior along Bellevue where you see this arch, there's something going on here, these incredible windows, these lanterns, these sort of almost Venetian lanterns, and you've come through an opening that almost looks like a face. Here's some eyes, a nose, this funny sort of open mouth. You're sort of debouched into the courtyard beyond, and this is what you see straight ahead. This curvilinear form in the distance, that bump, the balconies, and it's really a different world. This is where I think that the two of them really collaborated because it's a, it's a world of towers and dormers and chimneys and balconies and porches and places. By the way, a casino is not a casino where you go gamble the way we think of them today. This is really a club. For $500 a year, you could be a member of the Newport Casino where you could go see your friends, you could have a meal, you could play cards, um, but it was a really private club. But Bennett wanted a place where the public could enjoy it also, where the, where the le tout monde could be seen. Um, and the building is today very much like that. You can wander in, you don't have to as a, as a, just one wandering down the street, you can go in and you can see that it hasn't really changed. All the balconies and the little cupolas and stuff. Details, even around this little entrance here, look at those shingles and that transom light over the door. And it became instantly popular. Here it is in a cigarette ad. Here's a picture of the period a little bit later. You can see all that ivy, but people walking around. And I love this photograph here taken probably shortly after opened, probably in the middle of the summer. You have to remember what people wore at these times. Just must have been blazing hot. On the inside, if we go inside for a moment, the inside is pure Stanford white. This is a view of the theater, which was added a little bit later after the building had been open for a while. And it doesn't really abide by the same kind of strict rules that McKim was used to. So here you have basket weave patterns and plaster on the wall, these sort of interesting sunburst shapes, little floating medallions, maybe of, of um, astrology symbols. A keystone is really a piece of, almost a piece of leather that's been, that's been sort of flapped up under the wall. Seashells and funny column capitals and fretwork in the balcony. He used gold leaf and silver leaf to sparkle. He borrows from the English Renaissance. He borrows from sort of, you know, colonial detailing in New England houses. And he creates this, this sort of very Stanford white world. There's no place where this really, there's no one route for the design of this fireplace. He's drawing on everything. 
And one of the things they draw on for this building is the Japanese pavilion at the 1876 uh, Centennial Show in Philadelphia. And the building for that, um, that show, uh, that uh, exposition is still there. You can go visit it if you want in Fairmount Park. And they, a lot of people at this time, a lot of people working in the shingle style and other things, were fascinated by this Japanese building. And one of the reasons was this incredible wood screen on the outside where you see kind of slats here, bigger bumps of wood here, but this sort of layering of wood. And they take that, and with Bennett's participation, I'm sure, they really evolve it into these piazzas, they were called. They're basically covered porches on the outside of the building where you can see this sort of Japanese-ish-esque fretwork, spindles, lattice, and it creates this incredible place to hang around, especially in that summer heat, especially if you're wearing a giant hat and a suit and a tie. But these wonderful, cool sort of places to walk and the amazing patterns that the sun makes as, it, as they come through, like this picture with the sun casting a shadow across that wood floor, they're really great places to be. But another little thing I wanna point out in this building, not just the fretwork, but these little panels of stucco. This is called pebble dash. It's basically stucco and you stick in it pebbles and little pieces of glass. These are little glass balls, I think. And this fretwork and this pebble dash play a huge role in the next house they do. They get a commission almost immediately to do the Samuel Tilton house. And here's a porch in a photograph taken in 1968 of one of the porches. And you can see this incredible Japanese effect here again in some of that pebble dash in a much grander way on the house. And this is a really wonderful house. Here's a drawing of it done shortly after it was completed. And it, it is a new shingle style building, but it's still to my eye, retaining a lot of the Victorian um, frailty, if you will, of that time. There's a, there's a porch here. There's another porch over here, little pediment, skiddy chimney. So it's a beautiful building, but it still to me has a slightly, um, I guess to use the word again, uh, frail kind of Victorian vibe. The floor plan too, the walls are really thin, almost like Japanese screens. And you can see a porch here, a porch here, a porch here. It sort of flows all around. But that fretwork that we saw on the outside carries inside. And here's a photograph again from 1968 of some of that detailing inside. And, and this is really Stanford White. Stanford White carries this idea through the whole interior. Here's one of the starbursts. Here's this wonderful basket weave. And by the way, there's a McKinney White staircase at the Metropolitan Museum that is absolutely worth seeing where you can see all of these things like the woven wood. And even in the stained glass is sort of these little tiny squares almost though the lead is woven to create those geometric patterns. This is the studio at the back of the house where there's almost this sort of choir screen between the main part of the room and that area with the window there with that window seat. He puts silver leaf and gold leaf stars on the ceiling. It's sort of spangled there, but look at the paneling and stuff. It's beautiful. And when you get close to it, the amount of detail, the sort of obsession with detail that Stanford White puts into this thing, it's not enough to have flutes on your columns. You have to have this sort of classical scale pattern and feather patterns and amphibians and spindles. Too much ain't enough for Stanford White. Look at these Japanese-inspired hinges on this entrance hall cabinet. And this little tiny view you get into the room beyond. The living room, some of that gold leaf in it, mirrors. So whether it's wood or stone or glass, Stanford White is doing the most beautiful things. This, I just wanna point out, this is a little stone detail here. This is about 12 inches by eight by 15 inches high. It is the most delicate carving, it's absolutely beautiful. But again, I mentioned the pebble dash. Here's that shield, Stanford White sort of, you know, putting a shield there to make sure these people know they're important. You have to have your own coat of arms. And when you look at it, it's all over the house. Here you see some more of the pebble dash. But when you look closely at it, you realize that it's actually broken bottles. Here you can see it close up. And when, when I was talking to the owners, they said that every spring they have to walk around and pick up the pieces that have popped off in the wintertime. Glass doesn't really stick to stucco very well. And you can see little places here where the stucco was popped off. But this amazing Stanford white sunburst, which in real life is even, even brighter than this. It has orange glass and green glass and purple and blue. It's absolutely brilliant and beautiful. I love this little window he sticks up here, probably into the stair or something.
But again, the house has a slightly rickety feeling to my eye. James Gordon Bennett's sister, Jeanette, marries a man named Isaac Bell. And Isaac Bell came from a wealthy cotton family. Um, he became a cotton broker, and at the age of 32, he'd made so much money, he retires, and he hires our friend Stanford White to design this house, the Isaac Bell House. Many of you may know, and if you don't know, it is absolutely worth a visit. The previous house is privately owned, but this is, this is a house that's owned by the Newport Historical Society, so you can go visit it, and I highly recommend it. I go at least once a year. To me, this is one of the best houses in America. This is a groundbreaking house in the world of, of the shingle style. And it happens one year after Tilton. And in that one year period, the firm has really matured. This is a really sort of single work of art. It's symmetrical, but not. There is a uniformity of massing and detailing. It's solid looking. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have the inventiveness of the other house. Look at these Japanese inspired columns, which are abstracted bamboo poles. The fretwork has really been re reduced now to this sort of band around the upper part of this porch. But it has this solid character that the previous house didn't. It really is almost muscular and taut and pulled together, but not without sort of little flourishes like these spindles on this window bay or this amazing gutter box on the front of the house which collects water as it comes off the house and pipes it away. And look at this, those scale shingles and the sort of wave pattern shingles. The shield, interestingly, it says 1882, for those of you who speak Latin. Um, but it says this, the house was actually done in 1883, and it's almost like they either ran out of energy or they ran out of nails. They never put the three up there. I'm going to tell my clients next time the house is late, I'm just going to backdate the keystone. At the entrance, you have these wonderful serpents that sort of greet you as you come up springing off these hexagonal columns. Look at that great lantern, maybe Tiffany, I don't know. And when you look at the floor plan, it's unlike the last house, it's more of a square. Yes, there's this service bump off the back, but the porch is unified, it wraps around the front, the walls are thicker, and there's a reason for that. Stanford White is now using them as functional parts of the house, and when you come in the front hall, you can see the doors are really being to pocket into these walls. And he has these amazing, you can just see it here on the side, sort of barn doors on big agricultural hardware that slide across to separate the hall here from the living room on the other side. But the, the most amazing part of the entrance hall is what you can begin to see here on the left side. It's an, it's an ingle nook. And here you can see you're looking into it. The most amazing paneling. By the way, tile on the fireplace, glass on the fireplace, this amazing fire back again, Stanford White grabbing it for everything beautiful he can find. But the paneling is actually made from these beds, which are made in France, called Breton beds. And here you see two lovelies getting ready to go to sleep at night. Um, Stanford White bought a whole bunch of these, and he took them all apart, and he brings them in, and he installs them in Isaac Bell's house. And he kind of goes even further behind these little spindles. He actually puts mirrored metal. So at night, if you're, if you're walking around with your candle, you get these sort of sparkles of light coming from behind this, these, these little spindles. He has openings into the fireplace, excuse me, into the stair. A stair similar to the one at the previous house, but a little bit, a little bit more substantial. Again, there's the shield in case you forgot you were important on the landing of the stair. And upstairs in the bedroom is much lighter. The house is actually fairly dark inside. I think it was light for the time, but it's relatively dark. But the bedrooms are light. This is Mrs. Bell's bedroom. The basket weave brought in. These same kind of details that you saw in the entranceway at the, at the Newport Casino. Nothing was really safe from, from Stanford White's sticky fingers, including this bed warmer. He, would, he collected a bunch of, of colonial bed warmers. He took off the top and he used them in the paneling of the dining room. Here you see them all around the room. Rush mats, again, sort of, I think, a reference to tatami mats in Japanese architecture. But one of the most interesting things to me are these windows in the living room. Again, these thick walls enabled Stanford White to do these windows that could slide up and pocket up into the wall so he could walk from the living room straight out onto these wonderful piazzas and enjoy the, the weather and the light. The whole house, and this is the last picture I have of it, really becomes sort of a tightly knit 
design where you see window mutton and shutter and column and brick all very nicely coordinated into one neat and tightly thought of design. And it's amazing how McKimmy and White takes off. This is 1882. They become the guys to have build your house. So he does the Francis, they do the Francis Skinner house. This is 1884. They're doing the house for Robert Gallette of the, the real estate family from New York. But all of a sudden the houses are becoming much more important, much more luxurious. All the details we've been talking about, including the, the pebble dash, but this is really now a mansion. And if you look at the interiors, Stanford's white, incredible baronial interior where it isn't just the shield anymore that says you're important. The house says you're really important. But just as this looks to sort of baronial architecture in Europe through an American lens, they begin to look more and more to European influences for their work. In 1885, this is five years after the, after the casino, the shingle style is pretty much gone. And they're looking to things like like the Acropolis for the house for E.D. Uh, e. Morgan called Beacon Hill, Beacon Rock, excuse me. And it sits there today, just like this, in a landscape designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. Or this house, the H.A.C. Taylor House, which is a Georgian house kind of wrapped in an American uh, clabbered exterior. Or the, the Commodore Edgar House, really even more sort of Georgian. The houses are becoming European and important and big. So the focus of the firm is really turning away from the shingle style. That's, that's what they did early on. And by the way, I wish I had a firm that was advancing as quickly as this. It's really astounding. This really is a testament, testament to how talented these guys were. So James Gordon Bennett, what happened to him? Well, he decides he needs to build a new headquarters for his newspaper. And he turns to his buddy, probably drinking buddy, Stanford White, man of the world's widest mustache, to design the new Herald building. And Stanford White, as the firm has been doing, looks to Europe and they look to this building in Verona, which is really a town hall um, for the inspiration. You can see the, the sort of arches below, these paired uh, arches here with this arcuated pediment, the little statues along the edge of the building. And he creates this for Bennett. And you can imagine if Bennett wanted a showpiece, he wanted to prove to Pulitzer and all of his competition that he had the best building that everybody was going to come look at. And here it is at 35th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. The arches below, the paired arches, the arcuated pediment, sculpture along the, the edge of the roof. And these images I'm going to show you are taken from uh, a monograph on the work published in 1915. It's a giant book. It's four volumes. Here's a picture of it with a coffee cup. Actually, I'm holding the coffee cup right here. <laughs> it's a massive volume and it's one of my prized possessions. Here's one of the drawings from it. And here's some photographs from it where you see the detail. This really could have been taken. This could be a photograph of the original building in Verona. Look at this entrance here. For the, for the younger people in the audience, this is a mailbox. You used to put letters in that. And here's the elevations from the book. And I put this in here because all along Broadway were windows and you could look through the windows down to the basement of these big printing presses working night and day, churning out papers all night and day. And people did, people would stop here. You can see them along Broadway and they'd watch over the side at this sort of theatrical display of Bennett's newspapers. Again, this incredible client sort of thinking outside box, the box of bigger than life personality. And one of the things Bennett does is he hires uh, a French sculptor, whose name escapes me right now, to design this statue of Minerva, which he puts right over the entrance, with these bell ringers. Every hour they would turn, they'd whack the bell and announce the hours. He puts in these owls all around the, the perimeter of the building. And here's a close-up today of that statue sitting in Herald Square, named for the newspaper. Um, there's Minerva. They're the bell ringers, and they're actually guys who would, who would work on a printing press. They're actually wearing leather aprons to keep the ink off them, and there they are. But the thing I think that Bennett really liked were the owls. He, he had 26 of them commissioned. They were all around the perimeter, and he loved owls because apparently during the Civil War, he was asleep at night, and his boat, the Rebecca, almost went aground and he was woken up because he heard an owl warn him away. So he sort of saved the boat, maybe saved Bennett. Um, 
the owls that went along the side along the, around the building had light bulbs in their eyes that would light up. So as you walked by, not only would you see the printing presses blow, but you look up and you'd see these owls, these lights flashing at you. And today, if you go there at night, that still happens. The owls that are there still have green lights in their eyes and they kind of ghostly say hello to as you walk by. But Bennett was fascinated by owls, so much so that he hires Stanford White again to design a tomb that he'll be buried in. So the man who is larger than life in life wants to be larger than life in death. This is his tomb. It was gonna sit um, on a piece of land his father had bought in, in Washington Heights, New York, right in Manhattan. The owl was 150 feet tall. The base is 75 feet tall. So this owl is 225 feet tall. You could go up inside it. There were stairs inside much like the Statue of Liberty, and you could look out the eyes across the Hudson at New Jersey. And Bennett had planned to be buried in it, or not really buried, his casket was gonna be suspended by chains, sort of swinging inside this giant owl. And I wanna give you a sense of how big this thing was. This is a little watercolor I did last week. Here's the owl. The owl sitting in, in, in Manhattan at the highest point, and by the way, it's still called Bennett Park. The park is, there's a little park there called Bennett Park. And the other day I, I was on a flight to, to Chicago and I flew over and I looked down and I saw Bennett Park for the first time from the air. The head of the owl was 465 feet above sea level here. The Statue of Liberty is 300, 301 feet high at the torch. So a gigantic building, which I, I kind of wish had happened. It would have been our own Eiffel Tower. So what happens to the owl? Well, this young lady is part of the reason the owl never happened. This is Evelyn Nesbitt. Many of you may know about her. She was a young girl uh, from Pittsburgh that Stanford White found um, and brought to New York to be a model. He, he had a dalliance with her, let it say. She was the model for the Gibson girl who was sort of the, the idealized American woman of the time by Charles Dana Gibson. Um, she looks innocent here. She wasn't entirely innocent. She was often nude, um, posing for photographers and artists and sculptors. She ends up marrying someone named Harry K. Thaw. And Stanford White was no longer in the picture, but Harry K. Thaw, also from Pittsburgh, very, very wealthy. I think in, in 1903, he had an allowance of $35,000 a week, maybe a month, but I think it was a week, which is an incredible amount of, money, amount of money for the time. Anyway, he can't get Stanford White off his mind. He is just seething about how his wife has been defiled and, um, you know, laid low in public eye by Stanford White. So one night, um, Stanford White uh, goes to dinner. He goes to see a play in this building he designed. And this is, this is the, uh, the first Madison Square Garden designed by Stanford White. And this is really an urban version of the Newport Casino. It has theaters, it has restaurants, um, it has places to sit and see your friends. And it has at the very top uh, a sculpture of Diana, who, by the way, some people think was, um, was that Evelyn Nesbitt was the model for Diana, but she's not. That's not the part of the story she figures in this talk. So they, um, Stanford White goes to a play called Mademoiselle Champagne. Um, Nesbitt and her husband, Harry K. Thaw, are also there. And towards the end of the play, there's a song playing called I Could Have Loved a Million Girls. And with Stanford White, could have been a million girls and a couple boys too, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, Harry K. Thaw walks up to Stanford White and from point blank, shoots him in the face, shoots him three times from so close that people can't even recognize him because of the gunpowder burns on his face. But here you see uh, from the time, a little depiction. Here you see the roof gardens where he was sitting. And that is the end of Stanford White and that's the end of the owl. This makes enormous news. This is the New York American, you can see the headline. I couldn't find a copy of the Herald, um, but it also had headlines and as much as Jamie um, Bennett liked his friend Stanford White, he was not above profiting from this uh, trial of the century. This was the equivalent of the O.J. Simpson trial, maybe even more so in 1906. What happens to um, McKinney and White? They go on to be the most famous firm, certainly in this country, maybe in the world. They designed everything 
buildings everywhere, including the old Pennsylvania station you see here. And in this part of New York, in the Midtown, there's still a lot of their buildings standing, the Morgan Library um, and others. So you can go, still go see the buildings they've designed. Unfortunately, this was torn down. The Herald Building, like the Penn Station, met a sorry fate. It got torn down. It got torn down in two phases. At some point, the newspaper sold off the back half and they basically sawed the building in two right here, tore down all of this, and the developer built this tower behind the building. So here you see this deco tower. Here you see Macy's on the left and the L. And there's the front of the old Herald building. The statues have been taken down. That's the building. It houses a, a clothing store, Rogers Pete, which I don't think is in business anymore. And eventually in 1935, that gets torn down. And this is what it looks like today, which to me is almost as much of a shame, maybe more so in a way than, than uh, Penn Station coming down. James Gordon Bennett Jr., what happens to him? Well, he moves back to France. He's living in, the, he's living in his villa on the, on the uh, Mediterranean and he dies. And he does get his owl. Um, it's just not 465 feet tall. It's, it's eight inches tall. This is the owl on James Gordon Bennett's tomb in Paris. He's sort of sorry end to this great man. In fact, the rest of his life is a little bit sorry. He's fabulously wealthy. He finally gets married at the age of 73 to someone named Maud Potter, who's a pat she's a widow and her husband was a Reuters, as in the Reuters news agency, so they probably met through, through business. But um, he dies. He leaves his money to his executor. The executor dies, leaves his money to another person. He dies, leaves it to another. He dies, and finally there's a fourth executor. And then, I, and then the trail goes cold. I don't know where his money goes. Someone may know. But basically, he kind of peters out. But I think if you're in the design world, you should be praying for a, uh, for a client like uh, Bennett. This is a guy with enormous imagination, with an eye for talent, with the... Um, ability to encourage that talent and to do really amazing buildings. So here's to great clients and great collaborations with people like this man, James Gordon Bennett Jr. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Tom. Um, we have a couple of questions um, and he, clearly he was a great client, although I have to say it doesn't look too friendly in that final picture that you found of him, but. Um, I have a couple of questions. <clears throat> um, it was fascinating. Somebody brought up, which also occurred to me uh, uh, when we were looking at the early houses, the Tilden House and the, um, the Bell House. They want to know what the connection was with Charles, maybe it's a Japanese, and Char so mentioned uh, Charles Rainey Macintosh. And I had the same thought. So was Macintosh influenced by him? Was it, well, what's the connection there? You know, I don't know if there's a direct connection, but you know, McKin the shingle style, things like it were happening all over the world, right? You know, it's sort of, it's right before arts and crafts. It's sort of, you know, it's around the time of the arts and crafts in England and the arts and crafts in England um, and the Wiener Werkstatt in Austria um, and uh, green and green people like that in California, they're all kind of doing the same thing. And, and Charles Rennie Macintosh was one of them. Um, I don't know how much they knew about each other. I have a feeling that um, my guess is Macintosh may know more about white than the other way around, but I'm not sure. But they are similar in that they're both, both Macintosh and whites in these particular houses. There's really a complete, they look at everything. They look at the walls, the surfaces, the, the form of the building, the details, the materials as one work of art. I was actually in one of Macintosh's tea rooms a year ago, and just like the Bell House, there is evidence of the architect's hand everywhere. There's no surface that doesn't go untouched, unconsidered, unloved, and undetailed. And so I think that's the similarity. Um, and because they're working at the same time, there is a similarity in this in the styles. So yeah, I found it striking. And yeah, um, somebody else. Oh, somebody else is asking about Pebble Dash and how did it begin and what was the? Do we know when it was first used in the U.S. I'm actually not certain when it was first used. The, the, the first use of it that I know of is, is McKimmead and White. And um, 
you know, it ended up being used by a lot of people and we've used it um, in some of our houses. And I know that Robert Stern has used it. I've seen in some of his houses. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. You know, sticking glass into stucco on the side of a building um, is difficult. Um, it's, you know, it's almost, you really have to be a graphic designer to make something beautiful. It's, you have to, you know, you're doing now, it's sort of a two-dimensional pattern. So there's a lot of thought going into that. But um, people are doing it now. And I think um, there are other firms that I've seen doing it. Um, it's expensive. It's beautiful. It requires upkeep. Right. But um, I don't know who the first person was. Right. Um, and Pamela Babby was asking whether um, White's own house wasn't all pebble dash on the facade. Is that true? I'm not familiar um, with that. Yes. His own house was called Box Hill. And it, it was a house he bought. It was, it was a little sort of um, colonial clabbered house and he took off the clabbered and he replaced it with stucco um i don't i've been there it's been a while i don't think it's pebbled ash it's actually something called rough cast which is similar it's actually i think it's a very rough plaster that looks from the distance like pebbled ash and there may be some pebbled ash there but i think that's rough cast it's a very rough okay um and the and i i had a question looking at the tilden house that incredible level of detail i mean Obviously, all these families were wealthy, but was that kind of detailing on that house or the Bell House, would it increase the price much more than this more standard, you know, cottage, Newport Cottage? Or, because I, I was, I mean, like you said, right down to the, those beautiful hinges, every detail. What do well, you think the cost increase factor was? I think it must have been expensive. I mean, I think yeah. that, you know, Isaac, uh, Isaac Bell made a lot of money. You know, he's 32, but he made a lot of money. By the way, he died seven years after he built that building, so he didn't stick mm -hmm. around long to enjoy it. But it, it had to have been expensive. The yeah. thing I, th I think that's different today from then was that the wealth disparity, which we have today, was, it was even greater uh, than I think that the craftsmen who did this were paid relatively little compared to, except for the really famous ones like, you know, Tiffany and right. some of those. But I think that really, really good carpenters like that were relatively less expensive than they are today. Yeah. But it was clearly expensive because if it were cheap, we would see more of it. We see cheap versions of it from that period. Um, but that had to have been expensive. Right. And um, Kevin Wolf said, you know, great lecture, which I totally agree. He said, did you find anything about um, Bennett's friend, W.P. Douglas? I have no idea what that means. I hate it when someone knows something I don't have the answer to. <laughs> I don't know. Who w Next back, who are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. And but I got to look into it. Pamela Babby thinks that Tony Duquette was a sort of a modern day, yeah. which I think is a very interesting comparison. You know, I think it's a, a great comparison. Again, somebody who just saw beauty blue, and she said, and who could just pull it all together in this incredibly sort of unique way. I think he's a great analogy. Yeah. And okay, two final questions we have here. Um, Pamela wants to know what you're doing next, and uh, Becky wants to know when you'll arrange a tour of these houses for us. I would love to do a tour of the houses. Um, as I say, I, 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 you know, a, a week doesn't go by practically in Newport when I don't go see that house. I'm really, I'm I would love to go. Come yeah. with me. Okay. Uh, and Kevin, just so you know, Kevin Wolf says that, um, oh, here, two things. Uh, says that he, this guy was a fellow playboy and friend, a yachtsman. And he, Douglas was, he owned Sappho. Oh, um, yeah. Well, I know Sappho. He was, he was a member of the New York Yacht Club. Right, right. But I didn't know anything about him. Right. And Kristen Kligerman says that Til the Tilton House is for sale. Yeah. I, oh, I didn't mention that. It is for sale. No, no. I should have mentioned that. In fact, some of those pictures I posted are um, real estate. Oh. Um, Interesting. Some um, but um, it's for sale in case you're interested for two points. The asking price is $2.39 million. That and doesn't I seem that much to me. Uh, it, that it, house. It, no, and it comes on a big piece of land. It is an incredible house. And um, I said to John Ike the day, with all this coronavirus, we're never in the office. Let's buy the Tilton house and let's live the shingle style life and move yeah, around. It's gorgeous. But here's the thing about that house, because um, I mean, be careful because I don't want to you know, put off any would-be buyers. I think it's a very expensive house to maintain. When yeah. I was there, they were, there was a leak in the roof. They were picking up pieces of glass. 
you know. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Yeah, I think I think I think that's all factored into the asking price. But it is, if I could, I would buy it. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. Well, we want. I actually think Michael, can I just interrupt for one yes, second? Yes, of course. I think the DLN should buy it, and that should be their new headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be just as just as inexpensive as renting that little office at the Noya House, right? Well, they're very similar. <laughs> yeah, very similar. Um, okay, so well, there's been another request for your tour by you, Tom. So we're gonna have to probably in New York City. This person's asking Carolyn Lang. So we've got to get that going. But I really want to thank you. This, I found this fascinating and so informative and wonderful way to spend uh, a lunch hour. So I want to thank you, Tom. And I want to remind everybody that next Wednesday, we have another fascinating expert access um, talk by Tim Slattery. He's talking about American suburbia, how it grew, creation of it, the migration of it, how it's expanded. And now suburbia, as we know, due to the coronavirus, it's back in, the, in, um, in favor, shall we say. And he's going to talk all about that. So you can sign up for that on the DLN website. And also, just so you know, um, all of these webinars come with CEU credits through AIA or ASID-IDCEC, which I'm not even sure what that stands for, the last part. But um, if you need, want to get credit for uh, taking part, you know, listening in on the webinar, uh, Megan at DLN will arrange for you to get all those credits. So um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Tom. This was fascinating. And tune in next week, same time, same station, for Tim Slattery's talk on suburbia. So thank you all. Um, I really enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. Thanks, Tom.